the, the challenge and the difficulty of artists adapting to AI is a certain sense of our identity is tied to a profession that we do. So mm -hmm. I'm Bob mm -hmm. the Builder, right? I'm Ivan and I draw. And as soon as uh, technology is replacing that portion of it, the question becomes, well, what do I do now? If I can hit a button or type in a prompt, what is an artist to do? Am I just cleaning up? Am I painting out that uh, additional limb or the additional finger that the AI generated? Is that my job now? The New Zealand Tech Podcast, brought to you by Gorilla Technology, proactive and strategic IT. Greetings and welcome along to the New Zealand Tech Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Spain. Uh, today, we have uh, Ivan Kamal with me. Uh, great to have you on the show. And also, uh, Jordan Brown. So, uh, first time for both of you. So, yeah. thanks for joining great us. Great to be here. Cool. Great to be here, thanks. Ivan, maybe you can just give a little intro where you fit into this sort of big, wide world of tech and education and so on. So, personally, I teach at Media Design School and I'm a program coordinator for the Bachelor of Creative Technologies. I've been with the school for 10 years now, and prior to that, I used to work as a visual effects artist at Pickpock in Wellington. Cool. And Jordan? Yeah, um, we work together at Media Design School. I'm the program director for a number of courses in AI, IT, um, but primarily it's been uh, game art and game programming. Um, which is a pretty exciting industry here in New Zealand that I, I think is um, sometimes a little bit of a sleeper, but um, well, I'm sure we'll get into that a bit later. Um, but yeah, it's great to be on the show, and um, yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, well, um, no, great to have have you both on the show, and also I think it's the yeah the 25th anniversary of Media uh, Design School, so uh, so that, that's that's pretty pretty exciting and 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 pretty impressive. So we'll look forward to you know delving into a, a little bit about Media Design School uh, later on during the show. But I think uh, you know today we're really keen to um, to to delve into probably quite a lot of um, you know AI uh, related uh, news. Um, but first up, big thank you to our uh, show partners to One uh, NZ, Two Degrees, Spark, HP, and Gorilla Technology. So, and a little bit of local news as as well. So, yeah, we've been reading that there's a bit of uh, demand we we've, we've learned um, around sort of pressure on the government to um, to tax uh, Netflix and the like. Uh, so we, we're talking about um, you know the producers who you know they get uh, they get tax breaks and and public funding, but there's this. Pressure, I guess, on the incoming uh, government to, you know, maybe change how that how that works for uh, for the for the streaming services. Um, are you guys sort of have any thoughts yeah. on you know uh, I mean, where we where we should head in these regards? There's a little bit of a precedent which they've done with the GST on digital uh, goods services. Um, mm. Like you know, for games, that's a big thing. In the past, we didn't pay tax on mm. Steam games, um, yeah. which is kind of crazy to think now. So. Yeah. Um, there's definitely a precedent for it, and if there's a need, I could see that it would. Um, we don't want to kill our local market because everything is offshore, you know. But at the same time, I also think you know the great thing about living in this day and age is the open access we have to so many things. Um, the barriers that have been pulled down to be able to um, engage with media and content that you never would have been able to. You know, I think back to uh, you know late '90s, early 2000s, like someone coming over with an imported DVD of a movie that never got released here would be kind of a, a really big deal. So I, I think um, there's probably a middle ground that's there's some fairness, but you definitely don't want to sort of stifle our access because the whole sort of 
region locking of seven different regions and different IPs and what's released here and not available on the store. Yeah. I personally would like to see that open up a lot more and, and be able to take full advantage of the fact that everything's connected and that, that yeah. you know, what we yeah. can do with the internet. Yeah, so the, the idea of putting an extra tax onto Netflix and Disney Plus and Apple TV so that we can help fund our, our local sort of fulfillment and TV industry, um, yeah, could, could backfire. There's, you know, I guess well, we there's, there's miss a, a release yeah. maybe here because it's you know. not going to get enough viewership to, mm. to to justify paying the the regional licenses for our country. So, yeah, I guess it, it's probably really what our other countries doing, and are we following suit? Because yep. we we tend to be a fairly small fish in that sense, right? Mm, mm. Yeah, um, yeah. I think this came out of the Screen Producers NZ or, or Sparta, as they've been been known. Um, you know, out of out of their event where they've you know been pushing this this thinking, my my you know regular concern when we, we look at sort of extra um, you know tax taxes and we looked at for Amazon and so on and the like is it usually the the negative impact is usually actually on the Kiwis. So you know if you get an extra tax on Amazon, it's not as though it, Amazon get any any less money. It's just they pass it all on to. To New Zealanders, right? Yeah. It's like so you turn on an Amazon tax and go, we're going to charge you, you know, X percentage of turnover, or you add something onto onto Netflix. You know, Netflix will make sure that what they pocket off each subscriptions the yeah. the same. And and you know, generally speaking, I'm, I'm sure there are exceptions where there are economies that are some of the some of the weaker economies where they're competing in a different sort of different sort of manner. Where yes, you can sign up for video streaming for three dollars a month and and things like that, but you know, generally you're talking of sort of an economy like New Zealand or Australia. Uh, you know, these things just just get passed on, so it ends up costing costing us more and making life more difficult for consumers. Yeah, and I, I saw that there was a bit of a call to try and, um, as part of that conversation, also have more New Zealand content on some of those platforms, which also makes me think because I, I think there was a, a pivoting point a few years ago where Netflix was was the sort of de facto name for streaming right like yes, uh, let's yeah, watch it on yeah. netflix but these days you know how many you would probably know better than me we got what prime netflix neon um yeah and and look you know you've got the broadcasters themselves with, with tvnz on demand yeah. and so on and and i look i think we will see continued uh you know movement in this here i'm i'm not sure what the sort of sweet spot is in terms of you know and and if there is in terms of the number of uh you know platforms but it's yeah, it's certainly probably yeah more complicated than it w- what it once was, but it's not that hard to jump in and out of the different services. Yeah, exactly. Either. So I kind of think that you know if we're talking about let's get New Zealand content on Netflix to take our our local media around the world, that's definitely a good thing. But if it's you know the conversation is to let's put our con- content on Netflix so New Zealanders can watch New Zealand content, I'm kind of like well, why use Netflix? Like we we can have our own service because it's become normal to have five or six different platforms that you're watching mm-hmm. on. I think ultimately taxation is always going to be a very crude lever and it's one of the few levers that the government really can pull yep. in one or the other direction. So even if the heart's in the right place to try to get more New Zealand content and support it in that way, it's um, it's always going to please some people. It's always going to upset somebody as well. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a challenging one, but yeah, as you say, the the government doesn't doesn't have a lot of levers to pull, and um, you know this is 
this is one approach that will be uh, will be encouraged. So. Um, um, by some, anyway. So we'll, we'll see how that plays out. Actually, we're we're still in a in a position uh, of waiting for a new government to uh, to land. Um, we have had the uh, launch of the um, Technology Investment Network's Top 200 uh, Company Report, and it was indicating our tech sector um, has has earned 17. Point one billion in export uh, revenues to through to through to the um, through to June, so year year ended uh, mid year, and look, I think you know that's that's really uh, really encouraging, and there's been a bit of commentary through from uh, National Party from from Judith Collins, and you know it's, uh, uh, suggestions that we may be going to get uh, you know strong support for sort of broader. Uh, tech sector or stronger support under the incoming government. I usually take those things with a bit of a grain of salt because they, they give here and then take away somewhere, somewhere else. So uh, we will see how those things, uh, you know, actually play out. But uh, it, it's encouraging to see the the tech sector sort of you know continue growing, and uh, you know in the in the years ahead it will be well we've been we've been you know told that the way it's heading. Uh, tech becomes our sort of number one export earner, and of course, that generates sort of questions in itself: what is and isn't tech, and and so on, right? Because the threads of technology run run through everything, and you know, even if we if we look at uh, our dairy exports, there's more and more tech becoming yeah. involved, obviously, uh, in that. So you know, every every uh, you know every area of of industry. Uh, you know, all our exports, uh, you know, rely heavily on on technology as well. Even if we're not directly exporting the technology, I think the frictionless part of it. I mean, this is obviously a pretty old argument of you know, it's not often a physical good as well. Mm. Um, it works to our advantage, being definitely the, you know the smaller population when you look at when we're the a long world. way so away and like yeah. in a way, I'm sort of like when we're going back to the tax conversation. I kind of think it's in our advantage to keep that process as frictionless as possible because we're probably going to win out in the end if the way that um, tech media copyright laws go, that makes it easier for us to make stuff in New Zealand and get it out there to the world. We're kind of benefiting from that as well. Whereas sort of trying to restrict it a lot more, we're probably just doing ourselves more harm because our population is the size of a city, you know, somewhere else. Um, We want to make it easy for our stuff to get out and other stuff to come in, so. Mm, mm, mm. Uh, now on to, I guess, the the kind of the, the big topics for today, um, artificial intelligence, AI, and really the big story that's been um, uh, evolving, I suppose, <laughs> over, uh, over sort of you know, the past 72 hours or, or so, uh, has been that of open AI uh, and initially the dismissal of their chief executive uh, Sam Altman uh, I think you know caught probably yeah uh, just about anybody that read about it on on Saturday New Zealand time by by surprise and bewilderment and uh, shock it was quite interesting sort of watching the you know the different things being being you know posted uh, over the weekend. And you know, interestingly, you know, we've seen uh, we've seen a bit of a move away uh, some audiences from uh, Twitter or X as it as it now is. But really, if you wanted to follow the story, it was all happening on X, and pretty much uh, you know all of the key players and people, or or a lot of the key players and people very close to them, 
um, were were sort of you know posting out onto onto X. That was really the first place to uh, to to read about it and and to have, you know see the different commentary. Uh, and there were audio rooms opening up where you know people that were were in the know are pretty influential in Silicon Valley were jumping on and discussing some of these some of these topics uh, you know pretty quickly. Uh, which is interesting as we're sort of going through, you know, some changes with, with the makeup of the the social media world, uh, to see that you know X still holds a, a pretty key position certainly there in, in Silicon uh, Silicon Valley, um, but yeah, so that was the the first thing was. Um, uh, Sam Altman uh, exiting, and then uh, we and he was sort of a co- you know effectively you know co-founder uh, as well as chief executive, um, and uh, we had Greg uh, Brockman co-founder uh, there as well on the board, and uh, and and working uh, in OpenAI, who then um, uh, what was he? I think he's the president. Um, so yeah, he he stepped uh, he stepped down. Uh, and you sort of started to see that there was uh, a bit of an alignment, and you know a lot of people that were were supporting um, Sam at at that point. And you know, I guess when when we look at the the broader picture of OpenAI, you know, started as a as a non profit to you know hopefully steer AI in, in a sort of good direction through their research and so on. Uh, and then they launched a commercial entity uh, in order to, uh, you know, develop technology. And also, you need that commercial entity if you're going to seek, uh, sort of seek, you know, traditional sort of style um, capital uh, raising, which they they wanted to do. Uh, you know, and we, we're told, you know, they raised about ten billion uh, from from Microsoft for a near fifty percent sort of ownership of that that sort of that commercial entity. Um, but you know, as of Saturday, uh, you know we we considered OpenAI to be worth you know somewhere in the region of eighty billion uh, US dollars, and that was something that really you know came through um, because of in many ways Sam Altman's sort of leadership. Obviously, the rest of the team as well, but you know he was spearheading that. Um, you know, and and that was a reflection of his his background at, at Y Combinator, where many startups have been through and had raised many many billions of dollars. So, yeah, really fascinating. Kind of you know, look looking at the the story, uh, and then uh, there seemed to be this opportunity where maybe Altman uh, and Brockman would would actually uh, come back to OpenAI, uh, and uh, and it was on X that we we saw Altman. Uh, you know, sharing his uh, picture of himself holding his visitor uh, badge at OpenAI and saying, hey, this is the first and last time I'll uh, wear this, which was a little bit of, you know, I guess part of the pressure was being put on at that stage that the board needed to resign and they needed to make a decision very quickly. I think uh, there were some deadlines there. Uh, none of that came about. And uh, so we, we kind of land where, where we are at this very moment in time and it could have changed by the time you listen to this. If it's delayed, but where we are now, uh, where there does still seem to be a, uh, a slim chance of, of of Altman coming back, but what seems more solid uh, is that um, Sam Altman, Greg Brockman, and you know likely a, a lot more of the team uh, will be moving to Microsoft, and that deal seems to have been 
uh, done and and made pretty uh, pretty public. So uh, there, there's quite a lot to uh, you know to delve in there in terms of you know did the board just get this totally wrong? Have they got the wrong people on the board to start with? You know where where are the where are the misalignments? What's gone wrong? Um, and how will this how will this play out? Because I you know I think. If we look at the last year, which has kind of been this has been the year of generative AI, uh, yeah, it's it's been you know so much of it has been about open AI, you know GPT three point five, GPT four, Chat GPT uh, has become the thing that you know everyone's talking about, uh, and now there, there's suggestions that you know, maybe ninety percent of the staff uh, of open AI. Could exit and uh, and and follow Altman and Brockman uh, out the door, maybe to to Microsoft. Yeah. I mean, for a market that's emerging and so competitive, you've got to wonder what did they think he was going to do? Well, you know, <laughs> when he's gone, right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. he's not going to be you know getting a job at Starbucks. Um, <laughs> so they've surely accounted for that. Well, you would go. Well, it kind of looks company, like they right? didn't, doesn't it? <laughs> It's such a see. I I think about that. The public conversation around AI is already very foggy. Um, there's a lot of people who are misinformed. There's a lot of people who uh, have very strong opinions for or against how the technology should be used. And you've got someone like Sam Altman, who is essentially a public figure, who I think is probably like an empathetic bridge for a lot of people who don't know um, a lot about the tech. Like you can see him talking on podcasts, mm. on interviews yeah. that are not at all yeah. aimed for the tech industry. They're aimed at the public. Um, so to lose that public figure, especially in a way that's unclear, because it would also be very different if there was, you know, a, a clear mistake and they sort of opened with this thing has happened and this, this is what we need to do. Um, but in a space that's already foggy, letting go the public figure in a very foggy way, um, it kind of makes you wonder, you know, um, how much of the position open AI holds is because of who they are or it's, you know, the people in there. Um, I think of, um, you know, when thinking about like video game industry, um, computer companies, there, there are so many old operating systems and different companies that were sort of vying for like a public share that you look at now and people wouldn't remember that they ever existed. And it's because there were 20 horses in a race and one or two other ones that kind of came up and, you mm. know, open AI may have been the company we're talking about this year, but in 10 years, um, there may be an Apple or an IBM or someone completely different that we're not even aware of yet. So mm -hmm. I don't know, it, it seems um, when you're ahead of the pack, it seems like it's just such a big risk to take. I think it's fascinating as well how our fascination with technology is always coupled with a big personality, right? Whether it's Henry Ford and the Ford Motor Company uh, Carnegie Steel, Andrew Carnegie, I believe, right? And same thing here. Even though the technology is very different, we want to put some kind of a face to what it is. And that face carries quite a bit of weight with the public and also with the employees of a particular organization mm -hmm. as well. Well, um, we, we were talking the other day about um, uh, Atari. Mm -hmm. um, you should uh, talk about that because I think it's like the exact same uh, story in a way. The... At a certain point, I was uh, listening to an audiobook about the history of video games, yeah. and at a certain point, um, somebody in the sales team in Atari decided to 
to boost productivity in the company, that they were going to share information as to which games sell the most. And when they published the list and showed it to the entire company, it was clear that three of their main um, game designers were making all the games. They were making essentially 80% of the revenue uh, of the company, which made those game designers realize that they could potentially have an opportunity for negotiating their salary upwards. And when they um, encountered the CEO, they were told that everybody in Atari matters, everybody from putting together computers to designing to making the art and um, programming the games as well. At that point, due to that decision of publishing that list, the three head game designers left Atari and founded Activision. And to me, it's fascinating that the, the intention of publishing it, we need to make more of these games and not those games, yep. actually um, backfired and f- essentially gave these three game designers a cue that they could go on to do something of their own. How, how much of that money, that confidence, that team is going to walk with that person who's, who's the one everybody's seeing at the head of it, right? Todd McFarlane, comic book illustrator, mm. um, inventor of the modern look for the Spider-Man, uh, left, uh, left uh, Marvel Comics to start Image Comics with some of the top illustrators from, from Marvel as well because they, you know, he had the talent and then he took his name and everything that went with it as well. Yeah, it can be sort of probably a, a two-edged sword, the, um, you know, having a, a well-known leader, can't it? Um, mm. But, yeah, when you when you look at OpenAI, it certainly seems as though Altman has the has the backing of the very large majority of the team, which sort of makes sense. You know, the, the team are likely to be you know, mostly connected back to their chief visionary, which is, is you know, their founding chief executive, uh, much more so than than to the board members, right? You know, tend to have that that sort of connection. And so, yeah, and uh, particularly when we look at the the sort of, you know, cutting edge areas, um, you know, that they work in with with artificial intelligence, I think you probably look across their, their relatively, you know, small team, 700 or, or, or so uh, people, and imagine, well, any of them could get a job probably wherever they like, uh, you know, to a degree at the moment. And, yeah, that, that might mean, uh, yeah, the large majority of them end up at, at Microsoft. Which is interesting too you because the, the, they've already got a relationship together. Because um, the complexity the, the, there is there. The, the Bing chat's powered by OpenAI, right? Yeah, so what, what Microsoft have is they've, they've uh, yeah, effectively licensed, you know, through through their, their partnership and the $10 billion that they've put in, you know, my understanding is that they've they've licensed basically anything that comes out of mm. of OpenAI. So when you, you know, when I do, um, you know, even a, a business enterprise sort of uh, chat, uh, which actually Microsoft renamed last last week, um, but what was called Bing Enterprise Chat, which is your mm. secure within your own sort of three six five environment, um, that's using OpenAI's technology, mm. but. Uh, yeah, run by Microsoft. <laughs> but now they have the, the, the CEO, so <laughs> it's interesting. I guess you need more than the CEO, right, because he's not coding. Yeah. He doesn't know how it's all course, necessarily how it's all put together. But And what we don't know also is exactly what that agreement looks like between OpenAI and, and Microsoft. But 
yeah, you've got to imagine yeah. they're, they're in a very, very powerful position right now. I mean, yeah, if you're going to speculate, it's not that you have the CEO, but if having the CEO brings some of that talent um, and it brings some of um, the funding potentially and the confidence with it. Mm. And if you look even at, at Microsoft's valuation, which isn't far off, last time I looked, far off $3 tr- trillion US dollars, which is kind of makes your head explode when you when you recognise that it was, I don't know, certainly during the lifetime of this show, and I yeah, not too many years ago, that I think it was Apple that was sort of first in terms of uh, companies hitting that one trillion dollar market cap, and yeah, here's Microsoft sitting at two point eight one trillion, which I guess if you converted that into New Zealand dollars, we're <laughs> we're probably looking at past four trillion New Zealand dollars. So. You know, crazy, crazy figures, but a lot of that has come, you know, really since they've they've done their uh, their deal with with Open AI. In fact, you could yeah, you could equate you know probably a third of that, um, or actually over a third of that. So, yeah, a trillion dollars of Microsoft's valuation. Uh, depending on how you look at it and slice it and dice it, you could say uh, relates to their their mega $10 billion that they invested in ChatGPT. So it's it's kind of my mind. So where where do you you guys think this kind of could go from here? Because we're still, you know, we're not not there in terms of sort of mature uh, generative AI. There was a lot of speculation over the weekend with people saying, you know, has, has, has Microsoft... Um, stumbled on on gen a, on gen, generalized um, um, uh, was it generalized AI? You know, we we yeah you've, the, you've the, the more dramatic ones I've seen you know, sort of like the reason all this is happening is because you know th- that the super general intelligence is out and it's out of control and it's it's taking over and yeah AGI they, you know, isn't yeah, it? artificial general maybe maybe Sam Altman yeah. was trying to like put some brakes on it but they didn't want it like there's <laughs> some very dramatic uh, yeah. takes on it at the moment yeah yeah. Does that seem like science fiction to you guys? It sort of does to me, right? Like this idea that we've reached this sort of artificial general intelligence sort of level and uh, where basically human brains are no longer needed. I I just don't think we're I, I don't we're, think we're about there. to cross that sort of right, that right sort now, of line no. anytime I, soon. And I don't know whether we ever will. To be fair, we you know obviously that that sort of. AI will uh, will likely appear, but whether we get to the sort of singularity uh, type of levels, depending on how you de- how you define that, is somewhat unknown. I, feel. I think a question to ask is our definition of intelligence at that point, yeah, and how much yeah. of it is memory and ability to. I, I would be very impressed. I bring this up at work quite a few times. If somebody can do arithmetic in their head, multiplication, long division, I'm impressed. And I know everyone can do it with a calculator. It's pretty easy. Same thing happens with art. I understand the journey can generate an amazing image within seconds, but I'm very impressed when somebody like Kim Jong-gi could draw something on the wall from his mind just right there in front of you. Yeah. So I wonder how much of, with this new tools that are coming about, how much more are we going to yearn for the performative element of the things that we do? And also, at the end of the day as well, uh, taking responsibility, right? Somebody is going to need to take responsibility for the actions that have taken 
based on the prompts I've generated as well. So somebody in the company needs to make the call, right? You can't just yep. say AI told me to do it. Well, yes and no. I mean, I, th- I think there, there, are, there are levels to which we, you know, the decisions are made kind of somewhat autonomously today, whether it's share trading platforms or just, you know, the way different businesses operate. Uh, but, yeah, most, I think, you know, mostly these things are, are dictated at a sort of human level. And I, and I think, for me anyway, I think, yeah, we, we mostly want to stick to that. But there probably are elements where we can delegate some aspects through to, to, to AI. I think that it's going to be quite hard to, to make some of those calls, isn't it? Like, I mean, you look at, say, a, a share trading platform, and if you can put some money into uh, an AI-driven platform that can make you, I don't know, let's say, you know, even twice as much as, as could be made through a human approach, then probably most people are going to say, well, okay, I'll hand it over to the AI, uh, let it do that job. But we've got to be careful around where you draw those lines because even decisions around investment will have a direct impact onto individuals. So if enough people were doing that, you could shut down a business and leave a whole lot of people kicked to the curb uh, with no job because you had AI make investment decisions that have real-world consequences. Yeah, I think it's going to be much like the sort of like uh, dawn of the internet. Uh, that's what I like to compare it to more than like a new machine or some people have said like AI is like Photoshop and, you know, it's just an extra tool. But the thing is um, we'll see a lot of businesses that are nowhere near tech when that becomes more and more accessible, um, not, not just to use but to implement into your work, into your business, um, much like websites, I think we'll see everybody trying to do AI in some way. And the same as websites, we'll find actually a lot of businesses don't really need a website, you know, um, and some of them are going to create a whole model off of that. So it'll be like an up and down where I think some stuff will collapse, new stuff will come up. Um, I, I don't know if you can really say it's an objectively good or bad thing. It's just, it's a change. And mm. I think that perspective is important for us to have. Um, sometimes, you know, uh, given that we're teaching art courses and programming courses, that's a question we get asked a lot yeah. is, you know, am, am I going to do this course? And then is this skill set going to be out of date in three years? And, you know, I've wasted my time. And my response to them normally is, well, you know, we don't have a crystal ball. We don't know what's going to be happening. And if you're concerned about, um, the direction tech is heading with AI and automation, I think the safer bet would be to learn how to program and sort of be on the, the tech side of things because when it does happen, you're going to have a much higher literacy of how this stuff works than other people and you're coming out with the advantage. It's, it might mean, yeah, you're not doing the exact same job you might have been doing five or ten years ago, but um, there will still be work to be done. Um, so I don't think it's something we're particularly afraid of. Um, for me, the other reason would be that most media that I, I think really we're consuming is an assemblage of a lot of other things. Like um, if we think of filmmaking, it's, it's there's actors, there's sets, there's lighting, there's CG, there's sound, there's script writing. Um, it's not like we are at the point where you click a button and you just generated a, a feature length film um, that's sound and robust and complete and going to be as entertaining as what, you know, people are putting together. Um, that might be a conversation for the, for the future, but I, I don't think it's quite at that stage yet. I mean, we're not, well, I could, I could be wrong. I, I feel like we're not really seeing people who, who are really into books stop reading books because now I can just say, generate me a story, um, you know? Yeah, there's, there's, there's a, lot, a lot of aspects there. 
you know, when you see the images where there's extra limbs on people and different things like that that's sort of generated um, by these tools, I kind of wonder what equivalents we will get in different areas, right? So you're reading a story that's been written by AI. You know, where are the extra kind of literary uh, limbs, you know, that are that are coming through in this story? And you look at it, you go, I can see what's happened here, or or in you know some video, a movie or something that uh, that's been uh, thrown at an AI to uh, to generate. I think we want to probably keep a keep a lookout for those sort of extra limbs and extra oddities because they're probably going to be around for you know I'm I'm picking a fair while to to come. Yeah, whether whether they're there forever, I think you know that that's quite an interesting one in terms of how how these tools and technologies will be able to pick certain things that are that are odd or not. You yeah. sort of would imagine that we will be able to see the technology develop in those regards, but there there sort of probably becomes a point where it gets harder to get the technology to go further, though. And this is maybe some of what we've seen with autonomous vehicles over the last few years where it's like, oh, that looks like it's getting really close. And then, you know, when Musk showed out the uh, the Tesla um, FSD 12 beta and uh, he's, you know, streaming through from, from his phone and then uh, the car goes through a red light. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, that's the... Uh, that's the limb in this example that shouldn't be there. That's the the thing that's that's yeah, well, happening that that that, uh, that shouldn't. Yeah, I mean it's hard enough uh, driving a car yourself around some of the New Zealand roads as it is. So um, <laughs> you know the the slick highway example is one thing, but the practical. Yeah, I, but also like things might just change. Like I, I think like communication style like is a good example of in the past like writing a formal letter and like the, the unspoken sort of convention that goes with that. Um, we were laughing at work at one of the open AI, um, it was one of the promo videos for ChatGPT or, or something alike, where it's sort of, um, you know, the person writes two lines for their email and then they convert it to be this like nice lengthy letter. But then the person on the other end gets this lengthy letter and they are going, can you simplify this down to yeah. two points? And <laughs> much like, you know, text messages and formal letter writing and emails, like maybe we'll sort of develop a just a, a different way of communicating where we maybe drop the need for some of that excess because we know that that's how it's being seen. I, I don't know. I, I think um, a lot of the AI stuff, unless you're like explicitly prompting it otherwise, it very much writes like a high score essay with sort of like an aim and then like the thing and then like a conclusion of what that thing was. And it's, it's very wordy where I think a lot of language um, being as concise as possible is actually what you're striving for. So, Yeah, and that's, and that's I think often how we use these these tools, right? We'll take... A bit of content and say, give, you know, give me give me a summary um, of of that. On that point, and bringing it to the art side of the AI conversation, a famous artist by the name of James Gurney, who is the art director of Dinotopia, he has been maintaining an illustration blog for more than a decade now, and there's a lot of really good content conversations about watercolor history of illustration and various artists in history, and he's created a chatbot on his website where if you have some queries, rather than using the generic search, trying to sift through a decade of content, you can actually have a conversation with an artificial intelligence, James Gurney, and ask him questions. What is the best way to learn watercolor? What is the best way to... And it's a very interesting thing that it's a traditional artist's perspective on the use of AI, generative not in terms of making art, 
but supporting artists and finding correct content in a timely fashion. I, I think it was very clever. It was very refreshing as well to see. Mm, mm. Yeah, it is. It's encouraging to see some of the you know some of the great uses, mm. uh, you know, of of technology come through. You know, particularly when we when when we're looking at the you know some of the concerns that um, that that are raised, I guess, a, along the way. Um, now, a couple of other years wanted to delve into as as far as um, um, this sort of broader picture. Is concerned. Um, one, there's there's been a little bit of media uh, that came through regarding um, biometric sort of data control during war um, in relation to uh, to, to Israel. Um, that caught my caught my attention, and um, I guess sort of you know sum, summing up the the piece that I. Uh, that I read on it, um, you know, countries collect biometric data in Israel. They, you know, collect all these things on, on, on people, whether it's you know facial recognition and data, or or you know fingerprints, or you know what have you. Um, and then they put in place you know legislation that, I guess, the government of the day you know believes that can can fly from the general public. Uh, are comfortable with it, but then something like the the current um, you know war that's going on um, takes place, and then you've got a scenario where a government can start making arbitrary decisions. And most countries uh, seem to have you know these mechanisms to sort of flip the rules very quickly. If there's a war, there's a you know pandemic, there's a, you know, what have you, there's some sort of crisis, you know, state of emergency that you can sort of flip the switch. And at that point, what a government can do can very quickly uh, resemble what we might uh, expect of a, of an authoritarian government. Um, that was kind of the way it came through. And I'm, and I'm mostly, I hope, use, yeah, using their words, they certainly, you know, yeah, reference that sort of, yeah, the, the authoritarian government sort of Type of approach, and I just thought, oh, uh, hmm, that's an interesting kind of joining up the, you know, joining up the dots from a situation where it, where we might, you know, we might be quite comfortable to then a situation that again you might feel like this is justified. We're we're at war. Yeah, I mean, it's when we're making laws around privacy and data protection, it's it's not making it for this government or next government. It's making it for gov- five governments down the line and mm, you can't mm. peer that far into the future so that is a little bit scary isn't it well i guess it, it highlights that we we put a lot of trust in our governments and in, in our leadership uh and and most of the time i think you know when in you know western democracies like new zealand you know we can have a pretty good level of, of trust for for our governments, but you can't guarantee that it's going to be the the same forever, though. I suppose. So, so th- there's a couple of points I want to make on it. Like the first one is linking back to driverless cars. Mm. Let's say driverless cars are just everywhere now, and everyone's using it as their main mode of transportation. Mm. And in New Zealand, we're going to have a much lower road toll than we currently have. Less people are dying. There's less car accidents. It, it's overall safer, but there are still going to be fifty or let's say 10 even driverless car accidents a year and I feel like the emotional weight of that accident was not just caused by you know a human mistake the 
person was tired, they fell asleep at the wheel. It's sad, but you know, it, it happens. When it's now a driverless car has done that, that story now suddenly feels so much more heavy. So uh, there's a hard kind of balance there of giving up some sovereignty of data. Does it overall make society better? But there are going to be cases where information um, got out that maybe shouldn't have, that maybe there's going to be a misuse of power. And that's like a pretty tough one, I think, to weigh up. Um, yeah, I think, um, I mean, in New Zealand, because we've we've had, you know, we've always been considered to, to have, you know, lowest level sort of corruption and so on in the world, be a very sort of trustworthy country, you would kind of think um, kind of wherever we go on these things that we'll, we will... Yeah, we'll make good decisions that are, that are good for everybody. But I think, well, you know, what we've seen over over the last few years is things can get quite sort of polarizing in, in society. And we've probably seen, I mean, the US probably more so than than anywhere, uh, where it seems you know very close to sort of fifty percent mm. with with one views and and close with with often quite opposing views. And not so many people that kind of actually are sitting sort of in the centre and going, oh, yeah, I can see how that stuff aligns yeah. and, and those things sort of align and, and so on. Um, and, yeah, I can I can see um, these sorts of topics are probably going to become a bit more polarising, um, you know, over time because, you know, whichever way we go on these different things, you end up missing out on some benefit in one area um, but then you bring in some other benefit, depending on you know which way you which way you balance these things. In connection to the AI conversation as well, when uh, the models were being when the internet was being relatively scraped for art to be used in art generative models, yeah, um, there isn't as strong of a case for IP protection for art as there is for music. So there was a, a lot of large legal firms protection protecting the right of IP for musicians and artists and musical artists. And for that reason, the AI companies were very careful as to what music they were going to use for this. And I wonder with this biometrics conversation and the conversation being about privacy, I wonder whether it's going to go in a direction that my biometric data is my IP and I would want to know how my intellectual property is being used by who, when, and how. And it's kind of a a different route to the same conversation mm. in some way. It's interesting because I think it could also go the other way mm -hmm. where our definition of sort of privacy actually just evolves to probably be a bit different than what it is right now. And like the example I would give would be um, when photography came out, there were people sort of superstitious of cameras. Like, you know, is it capturing your soul or something by, by, by doing that? Maybe you don't want to have a photo taken. Um, with social media. Um, there are people, still people that sort of respond <laughs> in a similar manner today. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, social media, you know, like, you, you know, you, you're for, I guess, uh, people who grew up when that came out, you know, the, the thing your parents would tell you is, hey, don't just put up your photo on the internet. Anyone could could look at that. Um, and, like, for them, that would be a really big deal. But then the generation coming through, they're like, oh, no, it's just normal. All my friends have photos of it. If I don't like it, I'll just delete it. It's... Um, it, and so I sort of think about data privacy there where the reason we have that is because, you know, I, I'm living in a small town. There's 500 people there. Um, I uh, am a receptionist at the police office and you, you did something a bit silly last night. You um, maybe you got a little bit rowdy or something and you, you, you had the night in the cells. And now I'm going to go tell my friends who are maybe also friends with 
with you or someone at your work or um you know so we need some some privacy there um because what if i get it wrong what if it's a rumor but that's because that data is so individualized that it's about you the people you know to your situation but when we're talking about a large data set that is so unfathomable um I think it's almost a reframing. It's not the same. If we're recording it in a way that I can't track it back to you and where you live and what you did, but I'm using some of that information um, for something that people would all like disagree is like a common good, like um, the GPS in your car letting you know when there's going to be heavy traffic because it's checking everyone else's car and how far they're going. I think most people are, I mean, they're clearly fine about it because everyone's using that tech we m um, may not think about it too much <laughs> i think we've seen in the past we have seen some scenarios where that seemingly anonymized data mm. actually you can join up the dots between yeah, it and suddenly yeah. you know things that oh uh yeah you shouldn't be able to figure that out about that you, person yeah, you can or, figure out my patterns or, you know yeah or you saw it u.s military base and fitbits i think it was yeah, where yeah. it was like a bit of data got put together and then it's like Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, that was an un unintended consequence. So sometimes these things will have, you know, will have yeah. those sort of surprises and 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 their unintended consequences. And you know, I guess, yeah, you you could you could even link that yeah. back to the in in these scenarios, those those uh, uh, incorrect limbs sort of I, in, I, a, in a way, yeah. you know, that like I guess the question I'd ask then is because uh, I, I suspect it might happen like this that a lack of data privacy may become normalized in the same way that it's now normalized to post pictures of yourself and your friends on Instagram. Um, and yes, sometimes um, somebody downloads those pictures and makes a fake profile. Sometimes someone uses that information to, to do something nefarious. Yep. But by and large, the population has accepted that that's like just a normal thing to do. And I, I wonder if in 20 years, maybe less, maybe in 10 years even, that the generations coming up are just going to see data like a footprint of like yeah of, of course they tracked me that's how i I mean, i'm kind of curious about that um it, it's a yeah reframing of privacy yeah, i think yeah. it might happen a little bit yeah um there's probably a whole lot deeper we could go into these but we might have to save that for another time um, a couple of other things i wanted to uh mention um youtube are experimenting mm. with um um, ai made um media which i you know i think there's, there's that that could be really uh, fascinating in terms of you know how that uh, you know that could end up um, you know playing out. So uh, yeah, drawing on you know um, you know musicians' um, content to you know effectively kind of clone clone their voices in uh, in different ways. So there's uh, there's a bit of work going on there by uh, by YouTube sort of testing that stuff um, at the moment based on their model Luria and anyone that sort of heard me giving a futurist talk this year is more than likely has sort of seen me demonstrating some of that technology where you put an input in uh, with some audio and and they apply this AI to it and the way I usually demonstrate it is with a uh, audio wave on this on the screen and you've got a point in time where it flips from you know what was normally human generated and what was AI generated, and you know as it crosses that line, you can't tell you know where the AI's got involved. So there's there's some pretty interesting yeah some pretty interesting things uh, coming through there. So they're they're able to uh, take a text based uh, prompt and uh, an audio snippet, and then you know. 
basically yeah. uh, replicate these these different artists. And one I heard the other day, somebody um, pulled together, might have even been on, on LinkedIn, like LinkedIn or Twitter or something, was, was somebody, I think they had linked David Attenborough AI, <laughs> And then that was looking at a video of them as a as a person commentating and commentating <laughs> and describing them and you know in the wild and their environment and you know how they attract a mate and you know all this thing based on what they were wearing and you know the the background and stuff where they were in and their yeah. in their home and so on and it, yeah it was you know it's quite entertaining so there's this element where these things are entertaining and interesting but then there's those elements around what does this do to our creativity and you know like it used to be that to record music you needed a professional studio you needed tens of thousands of dollars worth of equipment mm. and now anyone can do it at home anyone can yep. you know get a laptop I, I do a bit of recording and some of the um, virtual instrument simulations are so good that it's like people will just use that now instead of picking up a guitar because the quality is that of a professional studio. Yeah, um, or you know, better. Yeah, from <laughs> from your laptop. Yeah, um, yeah. So you can say on one hand, like, okay, that's now there's going to be like less roles for session guitarists. Now, you know, um, studios are going to go out of business, but it kind of hasn't been the case because I think music's a great example of technology just birthing more innovation so like entire mm -hmm. genres based on things like uh, electronics and, and sampling exist because that technology is more accessible um so i, I don't really see that as a, a bad thing um it's funny i saw a video i, I might have shared it with you um uh, you know the gorillas song clint eastwood um it's a i saw a little short video of um you know how he came up with the music for that it's the default rock one preset on the particular keyboard that he had and it's like the entire instrumental of yeah. like a song that's you know made millions and it's sort yeah. of like yeah if that were generated by ai or if it were just a preset like does it really make a difference um in a way it's it's i, th I think we're just going to see things evolve and maybe we'll see even more things happening because as that technology reaches more people um again using the music example maybe some people are going to become musicians who wouldn't have otherwise because the barrier to entry was mm. was too difficult or yeah and we've seen technology facilitate that in lots and lots of different you know areas um you know professional photography you know good camera was you know ten thousand dollars plus by the time you got a few lenses and bits and pieces and then you know you had to be able to figure out what was going to land on the film after it was processed and yeah. spend huge amounts of money now you can yeah, you, know, you can grab a device at all sorts of price points, and yep. uh, you can get better very, very quickly. Uh, you know, if you if you put the time and yeah. effort. Yeah, I, th I think so. what it is, and again, I think it's something we've chatted about, but um, I think it's the speed that on a transition uh, to like uh, a good example of photography is like modern DSLRs and how well they can shoot in low light. If that just had have come out of nowhere in like the mid '90s, like that would have just like disrupted so much. But because it was a, a slow transition of like for quite a while like um there's there's advantages of the older tech and mm, mm. um maybe the the new tech's really expensive so the other one's more affordable and people whatever the thing is um if the transition happens over 10 or 15 years i think everybody makes it but when the transition is seen to be happening like if i'm not someone thinking about ai if i'm not someone in the tech space and i've uh you know been just sort of running my studio and 
doing music production and the first time I hear of it is like, hey, look, here's like an auto-generated song that sounds better than what I'm making right now. That's that's why it's scary. If I if I heard like the very primitive version of that and it's like slowly getting better and I'm starting to use some of it in my work and then a decade later I'm like embracing it a bit more, I think that's palatable. But yeah, the, the speed at which it's hitting is I think the part mm. that makes mm. people concerned. Mm. Mm. Um, now let's talk media design school um, since that's where yeah. we've got the privilege of, of hearing from you. You know, both you both... Uh, you know, been involved there for for the last um, decade. Um, it'd be interesting, to sort of, just to sum up for those who don't really know who Media Design School is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know who you are. You know who who, who Media Design School is, and kind of, and where Media Design School sort of fits into to our different sort of educational institutions and. Mm-hmm. In, in New Zealand, because you know we we have our traditional universities, and then we have, you know, I guess you know varying other, um, you know, often sort of private entities and and you know polytechs that you know yep. tend to be sort of more down the, the practical uh, perspective. But yeah, where does media design school fit in? Who wants to who wants to tackle that? Yeah, um, I've always sort of seen media design school almost in between all of those things. Yeah, um, it's interesting. Um, we are a school that does visual effects and animation. We do games, we do media design, um, and, and we are a private school, but we are offering degree programs. Um, whereas I see a lot of private providers are sort of a bit more focused at like the diploma level or like you know bridging people into and then they're gonna do something else. Um, and of course you have the traditional universities. Um, you know, I came through that and I taught at one previously, so I've got a bit of experience with that too. Um, that I, I guess the criticism would be that they tend to be a bit less practical. Um, they're quite broad in terms of you you take a, a lot of different things um, and sort of find your way as you go. Um, I think for us, our main goal is basically to have industry-ready graduates that are performing at a competitive level as they're leaving school. So, um, yeah, the, the kind of bar is not so much, um, you know, we want to get people started. It's like we actually want people in the job ideally before they finish the course, but as, as they're mm, finishing. Mm. Um, the other probably big point of difference is... Which is something that, mm. w- that we need in New Zealand, right? I mean, we need more yeah. more skilled people across sort of the varying sort of creative and, and, and technology sort of roles. And I guess as a country, you know, we've done pretty well yeah. in terms of that growth of the tech sector, the growth of our creative sector, and, of course, there's a big crossover. Both of you have that connection to the gaming world. Um, which is is probably you know one of the the perfect sort of intersects of it is. technology and, and creativity. Yeah. And the reason I say we're in between those things is I think um, you know you have a trade school that's very sort of like you, you can go in and you learn the things that you need to do and you you do them. How to do plumbing? Or yeah, butchery um, and, and then you you know you go out and work or you get your apprenticeship and 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 then you sort of have the creative end of things where it's um, it can be fine arts, it can be very conceptual. Um, it's um, I think this is similar to how art is kind of maybe taught in. Like school sometimes it's like you know you put part of your identity into it whereas i kind of see that those spaces as inseparable in a way of learning to make video games for example it's very creative but it's also very very technical um it's also not a thing of sort of like oh yeah you'll learn to make a game in a year and you know i'll, I'll be on my way it's like actually this is three years 
of pretty intense work just to kind of get to the the junior stage. But if that's what you're passionate about and you feel very fulfilled by that thing, I think we're serving a need where you can't, I think, effectively learn unless you're very self-motivated um, because I believe you can learn anything yourself as well. But if you are sort of the your typical student, you can't really go to uni and take one or two electives, one in game design, one in game production and sort of expect to get the result that you might hope. You also can't really take a one-year diploma. You're only going to learn like a sliver of what you need. Gotcha. It's really got to be a fairly in- intensive course um, that, that, that's really that focused on, on, the, on... In the best yeah. position to be able to yeah. Yeah, drop, drop yeah, straight definitely. in. Yeah, that's really yeah. interesting. And um, I'm kind of curious in terms of what, what you see... In terms of you know students that are that are coming in, and you know I know you know amongst our listeners there will probably be a mix of picking leaning more towards parents than than students, um, but you know there'll be a bit of both. And what I often see is uh, youngsters who are yeah they're not quite so clear on kind of where where they want to go. How how are you seeing that play out, Ivan? In terms of um, yeah the people coming in and then. You know, do they more often than not kind of stick to a track, or how much sort of you know change kind of you know tend, tends to tends to happen? Something that we bring up quite often is that uh, games as a course sells itself. A lot of young people like to play video games, so they might think three years of playing video games—that sounds like me. <laughs> so what we try to stress is that we want uh, both programmers and artists who want to work in the games industry to have committed some time in developing their skill to a certain level. Almost if, imagine showing up to a music school and you've never touched a piano and you're like, (laughs) I I just want to start here at a university level, you'd have an expectation of a certain degree of competence to a certain level already. There's definitely jobs in New Zealand in the video game sector. Um, Pickpock, the company in Wellington is approximately 180 people. Grinding Gear Games, which is a game studio that made Path of Exile game and is in West Auckland, they have 180 plus people as well. The games industry is growing and there's people all over the world playing games that are being made right here in New Zealand. So, so good. for creative young people who want to have a career, there's definitely a career in video games. But as Jordan pointed out, it is very technical you're not going to be able to get through a media design school degree just drawing pictures for the entirety of three years. You'll have to learn 3D. You'll have to learn rigging and animation. You might have a preference towards some of those, but it's really important as you go into a role in a games company, the larger the games company, the more specialized you can be, and the more small the games company, if you want to go independent and make games by yourself from a garage, seeking the, the runaway success that some indie studios have, you're going to need to be far more generalized. You're going to need to be able to, as an artist, potentially to create a concept for a character, make a 3D model, rig and animate that character, and put them in, put the character into the game engine as well. So it is very technical, but that definitely is for those who are, um, I suppose it would be an equivalent of All Blacks. Many young people play rugby, but not everyone becomes an All Black. Same thing here. Uh, you need to have a really good, strong base of creative potential, hopefully get trained by a school that has um, the pedigree of people who are from industry, showing you exactly what you need to know, and then you move on to the roles in the games industry. So, And because we're so far away, there's a certain advantage as well. 
bringing over senior talent from overseas can be quite challenging for a lot of game studios in New Zealand. So it creates an opportunity for somebody younger to join a junior position and learn from the people in the company and grow with the company. We have quite a few graduates of ours who are occupying senior roles in various organizations, uh, games companies in New Zealand. But I'm, I'm picking it's, there will be, there'll be a segment of those students who really, uh, they're really driven, they absolutely love what they do, you know, yeah. they, they will come out and you'll be able to kind of probably see and recognise them through the journey oh, absolutely. of ones absolutely. that you can see, um, uh, oh, they're, 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 you know, they're going to ultimately have their kind of yeah. pick of, of where they work and, you know, other ones where, um, you know, they're not, they're not going to be in that sort of same position. It's going to be, um, you know, maybe they're not going to, you know, just be as um, as capable or, you know, as passionate to achieve yeah, probably mean, the same it, sort of heights yeah, in their careers. But people are on different journeys, right? And, I, mm. I, of course, I'm also very much for, like, access of education, right? Like, if you mm. want to learn how to make games and you have no intention of ever working in that, that's that's totally fine. I mean, that's, that's actually a, a lot of the university segment is people trying to figure out what they want to do. Um, on that end of, like, very motivated people, I, I mean, I've got quite a few stories like that of some of the stronger teams where – you know, you see uh, all six people on that team get given a job offer before they're finished. Yeah, um, that's pretty we've cool. We've seen people start their own company and actually sell the game and, like, you know, be successful from that, um, yep. making their own way. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, the the other thing is, you know, if people don't get work right away, it's a pretty incredible skill set, you know, if, if you know how to – because on, say, the programming side, it is a software engineering course. On mm. the art side, you are learning the principles of, of 3D, of 2D, of everything you're going to need. So – um, you're probably coming out from either degree with, you know, a computer literacy in the top percentage of the country. Um, mm. So we, we do see that a fair bit too, where someone goes for a different job at, at a business, maybe in, in tech, and they go, oh yeah, I'm, I'm going to do this while I look for the games job. And then you sort of see them five years later and it's like, they're still there. And now they've moved up a bit because they've realized their skill set is like a, a, a very high demand kind of thing at the moment, um, if you can use gaming, if you can program, if you can make 3D assets and animations, mm. um, you're going to be very popular, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The metaphor that I use at our school when talking to students is that any institution, not just media design school, let's say can offer you 60 points of skill, yeah, to use yeah. a video game metaphor. Yeah, yeah. And let's say you need 100 points to get that job, that dream job working in a dream studio where you want to go. Some students come in with 10 points and the school will leave, they will leave with 70 and they need to have another 30 that they need to work after they finish studying. And some people will come in with 40 and then even before they finish studying, they're already having opportunities come to them where they could secure the kind of job that they might want. And then the question is which institution specializes in which area better? I think we're really good at doing video games. Um, but I'll also be very open to seeing more competition in this space as well um, because I think the games industry in New Zealand, it's a very lucrative export. A digital export is a very lucrative export because it requires no shipping. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, I don't have the figures on me, but um, I think the last New Zealand Game Developer Association survey had us a bit over around 1,000 people working in games in New Zealand and 25% uh, of that is grades from our school, mm. which is pretty cool mm. Um, mm. To, to be able to be so homegrown yeah um, and the industry here is very supportive of education and what we're doing and very involved as well like on a very sort of like classroom to studio type relationship which is great yeah 
Yeah. I think the one thing that um, when we're talking about young people trying to figure out if they want a career in this sort of thing, it is a bit hard, you know. I, the one I like to tell people is, you know, imagine you want to study history, right? Like you're coming out of high school and you love history and you're going to go do a history degree. Um, what are the things that kind of let you know you wanted to do that? I mean, there's a couple of obvious ones. You, you, you probably like history. You probably enjoy or are good at reading and also enjoy or are good at writing. Like it's a fairly short list of to know if that's going to be something yeah. you're interested in. Yep. With games, it's kind of hard. Like most people don't really know, well, what would I be doing? And I think the biggest misconception we see is people who think I was bad at maths, so I couldn't do that. Um, or the other way where people sort of go, oh, I wasn't creative enough, I, you know, so I couldn't do that. It's, it's kind of interesting that people have the opposite reasons of thinking they won't be able to make it. Um, I, I think a, a thing that we've learned really is that um, creative ability and technical skill are both things that you can improve at. Um, mm. It's a shame that I think in in school, at least when I was in school, there's very much a... a a narrative of sort of like left brain, right brain, like you're good at that, but it's okay, you're not good at that one, and, and that's just kind of how it is. Um, sort of showing that programmers can be creative and design a game, and an artist can become technical and deal with the technical side of, say, 3D and a game engine, um, is more easily overcome than people might think if you've got the drive and motivation and willingness to, to you know, try that out. So that, yeah. that's been yeah. our learning, is that, yeah, yeah. you can... You can make a game in one semester when you first start. You, yeah, you yeah. you're a game developer from the day there you begin. You That's awesome. And and not everybody has to sort of be able to double down in an area that doesn't seem like a natural skill anyway, right? So you can you can become someone who's doubles down on the creative aspect, doubles down on the technical aspect. And not everyone has to be has to be you know good at both, depending on what your role ends up you know ends up being. Is, is that fair to say? There's, yeah, I think so. I mean, it's yeah. good. Obviously, yeah, there's some definitely. real benefits in having, it, it, having the combined sort of skill set, especially in a market like New Zealand, where uh, you know we we don't tend to have massive companies with sort of hyper specialization. So you need to you need to be able to do you know be be reasonably flexible. Yeah, that, that's certain. And I think even if you want to be really specialized and you know what you want to do, having that wider literacy of like okay, I'm, I'm not good at programming, I'm going to focus on uh, modeling characters, but dipping your toe in just enough that you can have a conversation with a programmer is the perfect recipe, I think, for being able to work in a relatively small industry like in, in, in New Zealand because you might not be doing all those roles, but you're definitely going to be working with those people. And I suppose that's the second misconception. I think a lot of people think making video games is a very, like, it's perfect for me because I am really introverted, I don't like talking to people, I kind of want to stay at my computer all day and like just do my thing. Um, he says that after having sat down for two <laughs> hours of, of, of chatting around the yeah. table of which yeah, no, we're sharing about it's, it's, so, it's so, so social. Like, yeah. uh, the, and we see, I think we yeah. see the, the students who do the best yeah. are often the ones who realize that early and yeah. get good at communication. It's a, no, no one believes you when they're in high school when you're like, so you want to make video games? Well, you got to communicate. It's like, yeah, come yeah. on, that's, that's really yeah. cheesy. But yeah. it, is, it is actually quite true. You need the hard yeah. skill, but yeah, yeah. that's important. Yeah, yeah. Um, so many more areas we could we could delve into. Um, it'd be really remiss if we didn't talk about uh, the role of AI in 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 this world. If we didn't just yeah. sort of give yeah. that give that a moment. I know we've have sort of touched, um, you know, touched on that sort of you know crossover and into into your world um, through some of the other discussions, but. Um, 
yeah, how do you how do yeah. you see sort of things playing out? What's the role of AI? Um, you know, at the moment, did I hear right that um, that you you have um, you do have some courses that uh, that, yeah. that focus on on AI right now? Yeah, so it's quite multifaceted, really. Like, um, I think first of all, there's just the intersection of AI with education in general, mm, mm. and it's really making institutions rethink how they do certain things. You know, like um, we still do uh, figure drawing class, right? Um, and one could argue why do that because you can just find online reference, you can take a photo, like the you know you can get a model and trace over it. So mm-hmm. why do that? And um, the reason we're doing it is not because we're expecting that students are going to be doing that at a studio. It's because we're trying to build a skill. So the first part I think of AI in education is understanding that there's something slightly different between education and productivity in the sense that I might do it the slow way when I'm teaching someone on purpose because I want them to build a foundation, right? So um, same in programming, we may show a less optimal way to a year one student because they need to do that way before they get the literacy to understand um, an efficiency later. So I think in the first sense there, it's like um, schools, including ours, need to be quite clear about um, what we're expecting from assessments. And it's, there's really no one size fits all, right? Like if, if the assessment is to test you on your writing ability and your ability to construct a sentence using the language that you know with, with you know yourself, then you know that's probably a safe bet to say we shouldn't be using ChatGPT for that. But on the other hand, I could be doing an assessment um, that's not really assessing the writing at all, that maybe I need to include um, some of my own reflections just on, on the process and we're not really marking how it's put together. It's more the idea and in that case, maybe a teacher would be fine with using it. So it's very nuanced. It's almost, I think for us, we're actually putting guidelines on different assessments about like, Mm. you can or can't, you know, use use it for this or that. Um, But yeah, that's gonna be a challenge. Things, um, you know, like like tests and things that are sort of trivialized, if they are trying to teach a certain skill, um, it might mean we need to move how we assess a little bit. But then the other side of things is because we are working in a creative space, it's also, you know, we need to follow suit with industry. What, how are game studios using artificial yeah. intelligence? Yeah. Is it yeah. really replacing, you know, jobs right now? And I think at the moment people are fairly conservative in its usage because a lot of the copyright stuff is not completely clear at the moment. It's still kind of evolving. So I would say that uh, some studios are not really using it at all. Others are definitely using it. Others are experimenting with it. But I don't think we're quite seeing, um, you know, the the role in games right now for like a, uh, you know, a prompt artist, as some people said, would sort of be a thing mm, um, because mm. it, I think it's being used a bit more sort of behind the scenes and a little bit of, um, uh, I don't know, development, prototyping, workshopping things, but it's definitely not taking the job of an artist or anything. Um, and as we see some of that regulation settle and consensus come forward, I, I think we will see it implemented into workflows for sure. What are, what are your thoughts of are we you know are we going to see a whole different world when we when we've got access to the the you know a really a sort of a full gamut of AI tools do we end up with just a, a lot more creativity a lot more content you know the efficiency gains means we go from having and I don't know how many you know games that are there are available you know on on the varying platforms today but I know it's a lot. You know, do we 10x that number of games, and we sort of, you know, end up with sort of smaller followings of each game, or you know, how could it how could it play out? I personally think that 
there's this portion. The, the challenge and the difference is a certain sense of our identity is tied to a profession that we do. So mm-hmm. I'm Bob the Builder, right? I'm Yvonne and I draw. And as soon as uh, technology is replacing that portion of it, the question becomes, well, what do I do now? If I can hit a button or type in a prompt, what is an artist to do? Am I just cleaning up? Am I painting out that uh, additional limb or the additional finger that the AI generated? Is that my job now? And, But looking at art history, there was a period of art where egg tempera was the kind of paint that was used in majority of the art in the, uh, in the Western world. And then when oil paints were invented and you could smudge them and they dried over a prolonged period of time, the egg tempera specialists felt that it was almost like cheating. How could you have this technique that basically would be very difficult to achieve with uh, egg tempera? You're using oils now. I think there's going to be potentially a separation of people who are uh, very capable. They've done their 10,000 hours, and now they're using AI. And there are some people out there on, on Instagram who are doing that. They have a very high level of competence, and they're using AI to do certain finishing touches to their art. There's also a potential for somebody who um, might go down a pathway where they feel like they don't need to necessarily put in the work. Uh, to, I suppose to use a uh, sports analogy, uh, we have cranes who are, which are helping us build buildings which we wouldn't have been able to do in ancient Egypt by just hoisting um, things by hand. We have the Olympics, but we don't have the Olympics of cranes. <laughs> So we understand that a crane can lift a very large quantity of weight. I don't even know if somebody said to me 20 tons, I'm like, I suppose that's good. So a person who has the skills will be able to generate, let's say, an art book that they have uh, conjured up and then they can clean up and they can curate that. And somebody who doesn't necessarily have the skills will assume that they could and maybe they could get something there but it's not necessarily going to match the quality of the work that somebody who's done the, the time figuring that skill out. So I think there might be a greater separation of that. It's definitely going to boost productivity, and then there's basically no hiding from that. But the, then the question is, why should I go to the gym and lift weights if there's a crane that can lift way more than yeah. It's like, well, there's other benefits to it. Yeah, and that's to yeah. Jordan's example of doing traditional art, life drawing. There's a certain degree of developing your hand-eye coordination, ability to discern color, which is going to help you in looking at AI art and seeing whether it's good or not. But there's a whole host of the part of the conversation with AI art. Um, when somebody is using AI generative models to create concept art that looks like it was done by a person, I can understand why there's um, it's a very tumultuous place and people might feel like they're being slighted out of a potential job that they have. Alternatively, though, there's a large portion of art world where stock images are being used in advertising, and they have been, and in concept art world, there's a technique called photo bashing, where you take multiple photos and you collage them together to create an image that you wouldn't have done if you actually had to paint it pixel by pixel. In the process of creating greater productivity, the artist is still expected in the game studio or anywhere else to spend the time that they saved to make the work even better rather than go on an early holiday. So I think that's another element where even though there will be a certain boost in productivity, either in the ideation stage or in the polish stage, there's still going to be an expectation from an employer if they're paying for 40 hours in a week that you're there for 40 hours trying to improve the quality of whatever art's being made. Yeah. Either that or we start moving back to 
35, 30, 20. Uh, there's all sorts of, yeah. you know, discussions we, we, we could go down there. Um, look, it's been really great to, to chat to you. Thanks, uh, thanks so much for uh, joining New Zealand Tech Podcast. A um, bit of a longer episode uh, today. We've... Um, um, but I think it's, it's been great to sort of delve into some of these topics and, and to, to learn from you both. So um, thanks so much. Now, um, folks that are interested in um, just learning a little bit more about Media Design School, um, where should they go and um, understand there's a new Bachelor of IT uh, launching for 2024, so that might might be of interest you know, to yeah, some yeah. listeners as well? Um, I know we talked mostly about games here but yeah we have um, a course in IT and AI and games and uh, film animation VFX um, media design um, creative advertising so uh, there's a lot on offer there all really techy stuff with a kind of creative edge probably the best way is to go to our website um, and you can make an inquiry or yeah get in contact with us from there um, yeah yeah no it's great it's, it's been really interesting to sort of see how media design schools sort of evolved, and yeah, I'm fascinated to see what will what will come out in terms of potential uh, graduates to to hire from this new one. So uh, so that's great. Uh, well, a big thank you uh, to both of you coming on the show. Thanks everyone for listening in, and of course to our show partners, uh, Gorilla Technology, HP, Spark, Two Degrees, and One NZ. Uh, if you've been watching the live stream, uh, do make sure you go and uh, find us through Spotify, Apple Podcasts, whatever your podcast app is. Uh, and subscribe to the uh, New Zealand Tech Podcast uh, or follow us on, on one of those platforms. Uh, if you're listening to the audio, then you've missed out on the live stream that would have been on uh, uh, YouTube, uh, Facebook, uh, X, and uh, and LinkedIn. So, you know, come and find us on uh, on your favourite platforms. That gives you a chance to be able to catch some of the, uh, some of the content uh, just slightly fresher uh, than through your audio player. Uh, so thanks, everyone. Yeah, thanks for having us. This has been Thank awesome. You. Yeah, cheers. The New Zealand Tech Podcast, brought to you by Gorilla Technology, proactive and strategic IT.